Matthew chapter 2, beginning with the second verse. Hear the word of God. Now when they had departed and departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the prophet, what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or younger according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled. What was spoken by the prophet, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that which was spoken by the prophetess might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. You may be seated. I always always been somewhat intrigued by this passage because on one hand it doesn't seem to tell us much. A few short words and then some action on the part of Joseph and the Holy Family. But certainly some of what we ought to know is by much that which is not said. And the scriptures are often like this. That's why, at least from my perspective, a knowledge of the biblical story from Genesis 1 to the last chapter of Revelation is important. Because if you have a feel for what the story is, you begin to read passages in the Old Testament or in the New Testament as well and start to see patterns that appear of how God worked through his people and with his people over the generations. In the passage which we just got done reading, we see that God preserved the life of his son in Egypt long before he preserved the life of Israel there. Here we are introduced to a theme. It's a theme that's going to run through these verses, namely that Jesus is the second Moses. Moses also fled for his life from a king who was trying to kill him. The one who saved his people from their sins is counterpart to the one who saved Israel from their bondage in Egypt. The great redemptive event of the ancient scriptures. It was natural that the Holy Family should go to Egypt, 
not only because of its proximity, but because it already had a large Jewish population to the extent that Alexandria alone had over 200,000 Jews and was the largest concentration in any city of the empire. But you can see that Joseph takes the message from the angel, angel very seriously. He's like the people in our neighborhoods who move out of their houses at night for fear somebody might catch them in the day. So what does he do? He gathers his family together, and during the night, he obeys uh, this understanding of there being great danger. The citation in verse 15, the citation from Hosea 11.1, 1, is not in itself a prophecy, but Matthew is noting the correspondence between the history of Israel and the history of her king and savior. Representative, both came up from Egypt to the promised land, Redemptive history is full of patterns of this type of typology by which the Son of God is seen to be the fulfillment of what went on before. Jesus is the goal of that history and gathering up all its threads. Now you can see from the passage that we read that Herod was a pretty ruthless guy. And seeing that he had missed the opportunity to catch Mary and Joseph and the babe, he becomes irate. Something that we know about Herod is that the victims of his paranoia included three of his own sons as well. Large groups of suspected conspirators, in one case with their families, makes it entirely probable that he would kill a few babies in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not a large village, it was small, in order to eliminate a potential rival. Such would have been a minor incident in a period of history full of atrocities, Herod being the cause of many of them. To give you a window into the mind of Herod, consider this, when Herod was near him, death himself, he left orders that one member of each family in his kingdom should be executed so that the entire nation would really be in mourning. And here's another parallel with Israel's early history. Pharaoh tried to kill the Hebrew infants and Moses was spared. So we have this pattern that works its way through the passage. Now the, the, the passage, it's interesting, the passage tells us that it didn't stop in Judea. He could have. That maybe would have been Joseph's desire, but he heard that uh, Archelaus was no better than his father. He was noted for cruelty in an age of cruel men, but he succeeded in ruling only the southern portion of Herod's uh, territory, and his half-brother, Herod Antipas, more tolerant than his father, uh, ruled over Galilee, and so safer place. But the narrative begins with the birth of the Lord Jesus, or both in Matthew and Luke, primarily accounts of, of the events that occur before and after the birth. We've heard sermons through uh, the season thus far, uh, bringing that to light. We have uh, 
the announcement to, of Gabriel to Zechariah concerning the son to be given to him and to his wife in their old age, the Annunciation to Mary. We have the, Magnific the Magnificat and the Benedictus, and then thereafter we have the angelic vision of the shepherds. Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem, followed by a visit of the shepherds, the presentation of Jesus in the temple. The birth itself, in a sense, is understated and reported in very few words. She gave birth to her firstborn son. The narrative concentrates of what happened before and after. And it is the same in Matthew. There we read of the angel's appearance to Joseph, the visit of the Magi, and the paragraph we just read. And the birth is recorded in a subordinate clause. Joseph did not know her, until she had given birth to a son. But the significance of the birth, the most important birth in the history of mankind, is communicated not by any elaborate description of the birthing process, but by the announcements made beforehand by the heavenly messengers and by the unusual circumstances that attend and followed his birth. That makes the paragraph we just read really the finale of the birth narrative. All the more important, this is part of what we absolutely need to know about the birth of Jesus. So much else is left out, but not this. As you may know, over the years, a revolution has taken place in the study of the Bible, especially the Old, and Old Testament, but also uh, in texts of the Gospels. In the interpretation of passages, uh, being informed by a deeper knowledge of ancient Near Eastern literature, biblical interpretation, interpreters have discovered to a degree never fully appreciated before how skillfully the Bible was written, in particular with what literary artistry the biblical narrative is written than in the historical parts of the Bible. We now realize that the authors of the Bible, the Bible's historical narrative, really were not just vagabonds when God called a, pulled out and said, uh, here, I've got something for you to write. But they were theologians who used very sophisticated techniques by which they not only told the story of what happened, but wove in and under and around and through the narrative their theology and their ethics. They wrote history in a way designed to teach God's people what to believe and how to live. Someone has described the biblical narrative as preached history. In this way, the biblical narrative becomes theology in the flesh the truth of God and man revealed in an account of the past. The biblical authors accomplished this fact in ways appropriate to an oral culture, that is, to a time when the word of God was heard by many but read by few. They sent signals to their hearers, signals that, signals that ancient Near Eastern ears were attuned to and would appreciate and to understand they did this with a set of literary and compositional te 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 techniques, excuse me, 
They were craftsmen of prose, like painters on a canvas. They produced a text that communicated not only through accurate information, but through perspective, interpretation, atmosphere, tone, color, all at once. One of the arts employed, I'm sure you'll recognize, or most of you will, was foreshadowing. One scholar defines foreshadowing as the inclination, inclusion of material in one part of the narrative that serves primarily to prepare the reader for what is still to come. Sometimes such foreshadowing can be a simple sentence, a simple piece of information dropped into the narrative as it were unannounced and unexplained. An example would be the introduction of Sarah, Abraham's wife in Genesis 11. There we find the additional comment, the only descriptive comment about any of the women mentioned there, that Sarah was barren. She had no children. Why was that fact mentioned? Why did we need to know that? Because the fact that Abraham and Sarah were childless would prove to be the presupposition of so much of what was to come. God's promise to make Abraham a great nation. The long wait for a child to be born. The misstep with Hagar and Ishmael and all the rest. She was barren. She had no children. This is the first thing we learn about her because the fact foreshadows what is to come. In the Christmas narrative, such a simple foreshadowing is furnished by Simeon's remark in Luke 2, 34 and 35, that the baby was holding, he was holding in his arms would be a sign that is opposed and a sword that would pierce Mary's heart. The Lord would prove a figure of controversy and a cause of great sadness. Nothing more is said. No explanation is given. Only as events unfold, much later, will we understand what Simeon meant. This is the literary technique of foreshadowing. A more complex example of foreshadowing is found later in Genesis. After Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, but before we read anything about what happened there, we, are, we have a long digression in Genesis chapter 38 describing Judah's wickedness, his marriage outside of the faith, his utter failure as a father and father-in-law, his sexual sin and his stupidity. It's one of the most sordid chapters in the Bible. And it's about Judah, who up to that point was a figure of no particular importance in the narrative. And then at the end of the chapter, a single remark of Judah's, nothing more, that hints, only hints, that he may have come to recognize what a fool and sinner he had become. Then Judah disappears from the narrative and the story picks up with Joseph, his captivity, how he became uh, the big man on campus in Egypt, his meteoric rise, the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth. So we think all that history could have been told without the depressing account of Judah's sinful life in Canaan. 
Why is that dismal story told and why is it put there? Well, the narrator doesn't tell us why, but later he shows us. As the history of the brothers coming to Egypt for food unfolds, suddenly we find that Judah, Jacob's fourth son, has assumed the spiritual leadership of the family. It was Judah who, representing them all, repented of the sins they had committed against Joseph years before. And at the climax of the history, it was Judah, of all people, who offered his own life for Benjamin, the other favorite of Judah's father. A favoritism that had infuriated the brothers years ago. No wonder that Judah's offer to sacrifice his life for the life of his brother proved to be the spiritual rebirth of Jacob's spiritually sick and utterly dysfunctional covenant family. We only know how marvelous this is because we were first told how wicked a man Judas was. Later, Jacob prophesied that Judah, not Joseph, would be the progenitor of the king of kings. Why? Because he offered his life for the life of his family. Judah, of all people, became the Christ figure and the hero of this history, even more than Joseph. Only because of the foreshadowing of Genesis 38, we can appreciate the meaning of this history. Only because we're given a brutally honest account of Joseph's earlier life do we learn the power of God's grace to transform a sinful man into a righteous and loving man. We need to know what a wicked man Judas had been to appreciate his later spiritual heroism. Genesis 38 is an impressive example of this literary technique of shadowing, foreshadowing. Well, a similar question presses us here. Why this information at the end of Matthew 2? Excuse me. Why this information and nothing else? Matthew and the Holy Spirit behind him thought we needed to know about the flight to Egypt and the return to Galilee. Nothing much happened in those months. Why not tell us something instead about the Holy Family resettling in Nazareth or something about Jesus' early years as a baby and a little boy living in Galilee? What confronted When confronted with an account like this, we should be asking such questions. Why this? Why is this important to the material? What purpose does it serve? Well, we have a more complex case of foreshadowing here as well. Here, we have material included in the narrative, the purpose of which is solely to prepare us for what is to come. And like other instances of foreshadowing in the biblical narrative, what this material will help us understand in Matthew's narrative, we are very likely to read with very little thought and quickly pass on to what comes next. You will admit, won't you, that this tail end of the Christmas narrative is part of the story of Jesus' birth to which, as a rule, we give least attention. We don't sing 
this part of the story in our Christmas carols and hymns. It isn't usually even read during the story in our Christmas season. Why not? Well, surely because it isn't as charming a narrative, there's less here to celebrate. This history is dark and bleak. It's quite Spartan, with few details supplied of the journey from Bethlehem to Egypt to Galilee, sketched in a few short sentences. And it seems to us anticlimactic, a few verses to explain how the Holy Family ended up back in Nazareth. Otherwise, we struggle to understand what this information adds to the story of the Lord's birth. So why does a biblical author use some of his valuable space to tell us of the flight to Egypt and the Holy Family's return to Nazareth? Well, we have here, too, a case of foreshadowing. Here, dark shades are drawn around the beautiful, shimmering scene of the advent of the Son of God. In several, several ways, the text foreshadows the humiliation and the suffering of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the birth narrative in Matthew ends with a look forward to the life of the man of sorrows. Take note, for example, the way this history underscores the Lord's identification with his people by taking their lot upon himself, he becoming their substitute. We have heard already in chapter 1 that Jesus was coming to save his people from their sins. But here we learn precisely how he would do this. He would, do, he would take their place and suffer their punishment in his place. This is the significance of the otherwise puzzling quotation from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 and that which was read in verse 15. In Hosea, the prophet was speaking of God's love for Israel and is redeeming Israel from bondage. The whole verse reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, when Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 1, and applies it to, Christ, to the Christ child, being in Egypt and returning there to the Holy Land, it's evident that he's drawing attention to the fact that both Israel and Jesus himself are sons of God. Israel by God's electing love and adoption. Jesus by nature. In the deepest Trinitarian sense of the term, the Son of God. This shared sonship is the foundation of the typology encountered often in the Bible that sees Israel's life as an enacted prophecy of Christ's own. Just as Pharaoh, a cruel king, had tried to destroy Israel, so Herod, another cruel king, seeks to destroy Jesus. But God has protected his beloved people, his son, in the first case, so protected his son in the second case as well. The Messiah is recapitulating the history of God's people. But this historical pattern, this duplication, in history is more than simply prophetic or typological. That is, is more than simply a way of demonstrating that the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is here identified with Israel. 
His history is the history of God's people. He's gone the way they went, accepting their lot, even exile into Egypt. This is especially for Matthew's original Jewish readership, a profound way to explain what it is that Jesus was come to do. He's going to take upon himself the suffering, the pain, the hardship, and the trial of his people. As Israel suffered Egypt from a cruel king, so Jesus would suffer the threat of death from another cruel king, suffer exile, and so much more. He was going not only to identify with his people, but to suffer as they suffered in this world, and in that way become their faithful high priest, able perfectly to sympathize with them in their sorrows and grief. Even more than this, he's going to suffer their fate as sinners in their place. Take upon himself the judgment of God, which they deserve because of their sin, the Lamb of God who would be slain to get them out of their Egypt and their bondage. All of this is foreshadowed in Jesus. If in his mother's arms running for his life soon after he was born. Israel, the church of God, is God's son. But so is Jesus, and is still in a still more profound way, and the life of one son will be the f- true fulfillment and the salvation of the life of the other. All of this is then confirmed and then heightened in Jesus' identification as a Nazarene in the final verse of the chapter. The term Nazarene simply means somebody who hails from Nazareth. Matthew doesn't bother to tell us that Nazareth was Joseph and Mary's hometown. He assumed his readers would know that. He's more interested in the significance of Jesus hailing from there. The quotation, he shall be called a Nazarene, is nowhere found in the Old Testament. However, Matthew's formula for introducing the citation is strikingly different. Here it is prophets, not a particular prophet. The ESV puts the last sentence of Matthew 2 in quotes because it is what the prophet said. But no particular prophet ever put it precisely in these words. Matthew doesn't say that in this way was fulfilled when a particular prophet said that which he said in 2.5. Nor does he say as in verse 17 that it In this was fulfilled what the prophet Jeremiah said. No, he says here that in this way, what was said by the prophets was fulfilled. The implication seems to be that he's called a Nazarene in a kind of summary of what the prophets as a group said beforehand about the Messiah and that it conveys the gist of the whole expedition expectation. The obscurity of Nazareth, the unpromising nature of the place. Nazareth was so inconsequential a place that it is mentioned nowhere prior in the New Testament. And no other first century writing after Matthew and Luke recalls the prophetic expectation that the Messiah would
Yeah, the prophetic expectation that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men and that he would fail to meet the exalted expectations of the people would have for a coming king. John 1, 46, we read that Nazareth was not thought to be a worthy place of origin for the Messiah. Jesus of Bethlehem, you know, that would have cachet, wouldn't it? The city of David. Or Jesus of Jerusalem would have made sense because it was the capital of the nation. But Jesus of Nazareth. In those days to those ears would sound something like to us of Jesus of Albertus or Neutropoli. In other words, the Lord would give his life, would live his life in obscurity. Incognito, no one would recognize him for who he was, for what office he held, or for what he came to do. Tucked away in Nazareth, hardly anybody would ever even meet the young fellow. He would not be honored or worshipped as the king he was. More than that, he would suffer the humiliation being taken from the furthest thing from the king of kings and lord of lords. He would remain unrecognized. Few would think of him as the Messiah, much less the savior of the world. In speaking of the prophet's prediction that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, Matthew was thinking of such prophecies like that in Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Now, if you close your eyes and think, what does Jesus look like? Almost what jumps out at you is a picture of somebody like Jed with a little longer beard. <laughs> but he wasn't. You know, the, 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 the prophet tells us he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Jesus did not return to Bethlehem or Jerusalem as might have been expected of the king who would sit forever on David's throne. He went instead to Nazareth. Apart from the gospel history, we know nothing about Nazareth. Its chief characteristic was its irrelevance. It's insignificance. The Jews in Judea thought, about, thought of Galilee as Hicksville. Years later, when Philip runs to Nathaniel, excitedly telling them that they found the one that Moses had written about and that he was Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel was only expressing perfectly natural surprise and incredulity when he responded, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? No great king, no savior of the world could ever come from a jerkwater town like Nazareth. And of course, what was true of his hometown was true of his entire life as our mediator and substitute. Though he was in truth God the Son, and though he was the long-awaited Messiah, and though he was the king of kings, he would, he would live all his life to be either ignored or positively hated, 
vilified, rejected by his own people. They would accuse him of being a drunk and a glutton, a servant of the devil. They would accuse him of consorting with sinners and being a great sinner himself. They would mock him as an amateur wannabe, as a man set out of his depths as merely an attention seeker. Far from recognizing the Son of God, many people, and the most important people among them, did not even regard him as a good man. What's more, from early on in his ministry, there, there were plots hatched to kill him. Herod was only the first. He came from his high throne in heaven above to this. Why? Because this is humiliation and rejection, leading ultimately to his crucifixion with a price fixed by the justice of God to atone for the sins of those for whose salvation he had come to the world. The price of your redemption and mine was paid in full on the cross, but it was not paid on the cross alone. No, that price began to be paid as soon as Jesus came into the world. God, the mighty maker, conceived in the Jewish maiden's womb, born in a cow shed because there was no accommodation to be found for them, I don't know if you've ever slept in a cow shed, but I've walked by a few. The odors are not all that inviting either. Fleeing to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath and returning to live and grow, grow, grow up in the most inconsequential village in Galilee. Utterly unrecognized for who he was. They ignore many of this plunge of the Son of God to the very bottom of human life was our price, was the price for our eventual rise to the heights of heaven. Surely that is not insignificant, that the very last words of the Christmas history recorded for us in Luke and Matthew are these, he will be called a Nazarene. It reminds me of a gospel hymn, song, not sure what you would call it. I have it on a CD. It's been many, well, actually it's on MP3 player. A long time trying to find because it's a choral group, the Singing Men of Scotland. And the one hymn that they sing has this refrain, what Jesus has done. For the soul of mine, the half has never been told. The Lord Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, came to do this for us. I want us to think about this and take this to heart this post-Christmas Sunday morning. No one wants to be nothing or to be thought nothing. It's our greatest pa passion in life to have a place in the world, to be somebody. It is why we're so defensive when we're criticized. 
Why we erect so many walls to protect ourselves from any thought that we don't count. That our lives mean nothing. We can't bear to be thought to be, to be thought of as nothing. But this is what Jesus Christ willingly became for us. Nothing. The Son of God will become a mere human being among the faceless multitude of his own creatures. Later on, when the Lord's followers were called, as he had been called Nazarenes, the people who used the term meant it as a slur, an insult. It meant They meant to describe Christians as nothings. If they hated the master, they would despise his servants as well, and that is what is indicated here. Here in the final sentences of, the last, of this Christmas history of the Gospel of Matthew, Nazarene foreshadowed what his life would be and become. The high God stooped not only to become a man, but the lowest kind of man, a nothing man. And he did so because nothing else than his coming, becoming nothing, would suffice to make us something. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our Father, we thank you for the words of, of Scripture. Help us to understand more and more how that total picture from the beginning to the end is so intricately woven together, in many cases by masterful men who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Such patterns and symbolism and typology and foreshadowing that we see in the scriptures. Lord, please help it to make us even more hungry to search the scriptures and to see Christ crucified, risen, ascended on high, as indeed our champion who paid for our sins. May it humble us to know that even there's much more that we do not know which he went through for our salvation. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. To Jesus Christ who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, made us to be a kingdom, priests of God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Please stand and let us sing the doxology. <clears throat>